when we talk about the development of panya in meditation, meaning insight or wisdom. Traditionally, we talk about a progress of insight from an initial understanding of truth gained from listening to others, reading, studying, remembering the teachings. What we call Sutta Maya Panya. That's obviously superficial to our experience. So as we continue to practice and meditate, we bring in inside those teachings, those words, concepts, memories. Think about them, contemplate them, compare our own experience with what we've heard. This is what we call Jinta Maya Panya. But even that is not the highest wisdom, highest understanding. As we continue to practice and meditate, we learn to calm the mind, concentrate the mind. As it quietens down, then we have the chance to know and see the truth as it is, without just thinking about it or analyzing it, or just witnessing it, knowing it from the peace of the quiet or the still mind. This is Bhavana Maya Panya, the wisdom, the insight that develops right out of the peaceful mind. So we can see that the Buddha encouraged us to listen to Dhamma, think about it, but not yet to take that as the ultimate or the kind of insight that will liberate our heart from suffering yet. But it certainly is a necessary step on the path. But to also see the importance of developing mindfulness and tranquility as a foundation for quietening the mind so that it can actually see truth, no truth, no longer just remembering the words and thinking about it, but actually knowing deeply, clear, clearly seeing for oneself. The result of that is uh, little by little or sometimes in a very profound way we are eradicating delusion and ignorance from the mind, misunderstanding of truth. 
that causes us to fall into stress and suffering, causes us to even be reborn over and over again. We uproot our misunderstandings and delusions. So this is why it's important to develop the quiet mind and keep doing that, returning to our basic meditation object, uh, the breath meditation or the contemplation of the body. There's different techniques we can use, all aimed first of all just to calm the mind, bring it to tranquility so that wisdom and insight can develop from that. So we can experiment as we're meditating. We can turn our minds, having practiced uh, mindfulness of breathing, say, for a while, and the mind seems more calm, more stable. We'll turn one's attention to contemplate experience. Contemplating is directing the mind to be mindful of anicca, dukkha, anatta. To be mindful of, to investigate anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and instability of body and mind the lack of self, lack of an owner in this body and mind, in our experience. If we're not sure what to do to develop wisdom, insight, our teachers always encourage us to start with this body. And this body we have here, our physical form. It's the most basic delusion we have is the view that this body is self. It's a being, a person, something that we own and control. We have to investigate, developing mindfulness of the impermanence of this body, how it changes and ages. One day it must die. How unstable, unstable it is unsatisfactory in the sense it cannot last forever. It brings us much pain and discomfort as well. It's ultimately not a self, not a, a being that will last, something that will gradually break up and return to the elements, the four elements. We can contemplate this as long as the mind is quiet enough, we can maintain our attention on the body mindfully being aware of impermanence, the impermanence of the body. I once visited a famous meditation master, Lumpur Tait, and he gave a talk. He said, the Buddha 
was enlightened through the practice and development of the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, directing the mind to the body, to be mindful of the body, mindful of feeling, mindful of the mind itself, mindful of dhamma, meaning all phenomena. He said all of these four foundations of mindfulness grow out of the first, developing mindfulness directed to the body. The way for human beings to overcome their stress, their sufferings, through directing mindfulness to this body. So when we're peaceful and we turn to contemplate this body, what do we find? We see how normally we are identifying with this body as me, mine, myself. And the sense of mind and body and this human being all being one thing is very strong. It's difficult to separate anything, they separate the mind and the body or feelings or sense contact. It all seems to be one big lump or mass of self. That's our normal experience. But when we're calm in meditation, mindfulness is improved, we can question that and look more deeply at our experience. We can see how we normally identify just with the physical form, the visual image of our body, other people's bodies. We identify with the attractiveness of the body. It's probably our most basic attachment. Always trying to make the body look beautiful. Make it look good, physically strong, healthy, pleasing to the eye. We dress it and manicure it and so on. That's just a, an image that we get into the habit of attaching to. And it makes us feel happy when that image is pleasing and good. Makes us feel unhappy if it's not to our satisfaction. With others, we're constantly looking out at other people's bodies as well taking satisfaction or dissatisfaction in their bodies. We're constantly caught into that habit, identifying with the body with self and trying to make it and find the attractiveness in this body. From that we gain much stress and suffering with uh, and the happiness and sadness associated with our image of our own body and the image of others. In the time of the Buddha there was one lady, a queen, Kema, the wife of 
the King Bimbisara. King Bimbisara was already well practiced in meditation, had great faith in the Buddha, and he'd already attained Sodapanna. He was a stream winner, first stage of enlightenment. <clears throat> and the mind of a stream winner is such that they are always keen to encourage others to hear and understand Dhamma. Having unshakable faith themselves, they see the value of Dhamma practice. Always wish for others to understand the Dhamma. So his queen, Kema, wasn't interested in Dhamma because she was somebody very, very beautiful. That's probably why he picked her as his queen. Her external beauty was renowned in the kingdom, but it was a cause for great attachment, what we call Sakaya Ditti, self-view, identifying with this, this, this body as me, myself. <clears throat> that view was actually deep down a great cause of suffering for Kema. She had great pride, conceit based on her beauty. Was constantly afraid that others, there may be somebody around who's more beautiful constantly worried about her looks, concerned on that superficial level, never going in deep, more deeply into the Dhamma. And she was actually afraid to visit the Buddha. But she heard that the Buddha is somebody who teaches about a super meditation, meditation on the unattractiveness of the body. So she didn't want to meet the Buddha or hear the Dhamma and this distressed her husband, Bimbisara, who's always thinking of ways to encourage his wife to go and listen to Dhamma, because he knew in the end it would be good for her and bring her peace and happiness through understanding and insight. So knowing her character, the only way he could think of getting her into the monastery was he got his chief poet to write a poem about the beauty of the Buddha's monastery, which at that time he was living at Weluwana, the bamboo grove. There's a lot of animals, like a park, very beautiful. So the poet arranged a composition describing how beautiful the monastery was. Then he got his chief musician to put it to music, so it became a, a song to entertain the palace crowd on a night time. Having heard this amazing poem and song about the monastery, Kema was <clears throat> inspired to visit. She couldn't resist because she was so interested in that which was beautiful and attractive in the world. She thought, must go and check this out. 
So when she went there, she's still afraid of the Buddha, so she took her entourage and they walked around the monastery, but keeping far away from the Buddha, enjoying the peace, tranquility and beauty of the monastery. But the king kept thinking of ways to direct her towards the Buddha until he finally managed to steer her towards the Buddha. And when she sat down and paid respects to the Buddha, she noticed one lady sitting very close to the Buddha, fanning him. And this lady was instantly recognizable as very, very beautiful, very graceful in her behavior, well behaved. Obviously with great faith in the Buddha, very close to the Buddha attending on him and came and knew that the Buddha was greatly respected in the community very important teacher so it seemed like this lady had everything more even more beautiful than Kema closer to the Buddha the Dhamma the Sangha than Kema so instantly she became a little bit unnerved jealous what she didn't know is that this lady was actually a, an image created by the Buddha's psychic powers she wasn't real he used his great psychic ability to create her an image that would catch Kama's attention make her think a bit. At first her thoughts were just thoughts of jealousy. But as she sat there listening to the Buddha teach and watching this very beautiful lady fanning the Buddha, the Buddha out of compassion made the image of the lady change from being very young and attractive, graceful, she started to age before Kama's very eyes. Her hair changed color, her skin changed color and wrinkled. She started to stoop. She started to age and gradually turn from young into middle age, into old age and then actually lay down and died in front of Kama, an old lady, which, which shocked Kama. It stunned her into quietness, never having seen anything quite like this before. Suddenly this beautiful the most beautiful lady turns into an old lady and then dies. And the Buddha was also teaching about the impermanent nature of this world, this body, this mind and the world around us. So she was settled enough to quietly follow the words that the Buddha was teaching and to then reflect for herself in her own mind. And because she had actually been practicing in many previous lifetimes, 
they say, insight arose at that time. And she penetrated through her own sakayaditi, that kind of blind attachment to the body as self, the superficial attachment to the body as self, that view. She broke through it and realized oh, the body is actually something that is impermanent. It ages, it must die. It's not a real self, a lasting self. So her whole way of viewing life changed instantly on that realization. And she too became Sotapanna at that time. Not long after that, deepening her practice, she actually left the palace, shaved her head and became a nun. She became nun, the nun who was foremost in wisdom, insight of all the nuns. Comparable to Sariputta. See, when you look at this statue of the Buddha here, we have two monks either side, Venerable Sariputta and Moggallana. Sariputta is foremost in wisdom. Or Kema is foremost in wisdom for the nuns. When we meditate, sometimes insight will arise during our meditation where the mind quietens down and we see impermanence, the impermanence of this body or our feelings, our thoughts. We notice it in a way we've never seen before or clearer than before. Sometimes insight will come when we're not meditating when we're walking, when we're eating, or when we're just doing some other activity, the mind can quieten down and insight can arise. But insight is always supported by some faith, mindfulness, and the sense of the mind calming down, letting go of the distractions of life whether it's in meditation or in some other activity, the important thing is to keep bringing the mind back to the present moment with mindfulness. Sometimes even insight just arises out of its own causes and conditions. We haven't even consciously turned the mind to contemplate anything about impermanence or not-self, but the mind just recognizes that in some experience and lets go. Let's go of its superficial attachment and sees the deeper, more profound Dhamma, just knows mm, this is impermanent. And that letting go and the insight and the letting go is always accompanied by a sense of peace and release. And that's the indication that it's true insight. As if there's a sense of the mind relaxing, turning to peace, becoming more content and happy in itself. 
So this kind of insight can even arise in just contemplating your own body, understanding it is aging. One day it has to die, we have to die. We won't be here forever. When all the conditions are right, that kind of insight can bring great peace. As we let go, if you think about it, when you can see the impermanence of this body, then the causes for us to get angry or jealous or to have lust or greed are being undermined, they're being taken away because of the presence of insight. If you can see the impermanence of this life, this is a very mature insight you can see maybe many of the things we're infatuated with life, or things that cause us to be angry or fall into conflict, seem very immature or very temporary, not so important. As we meditate, we can see much of our suffering comes through giving too much importance to this sense of self, identifying with this body as self. It's as if we, much of the time, are a little bit intoxicated with our own sense of self, centered around our body. So when pleasant experiences happen, we get excited and caught up in them. With unpleasant experiences, we tend to get upset, depressed. All of this is because we're thinking without insight. So the more normal thinking human beings have where they just react to pleasant and unpleasant experiences. This is a reflection of this, what we call Sakaya Ditti, the self-view. You can see, when you think about your body, you're always going to be unhappy because a human body is naturally, normally imperfect. We can never look quite as good as we would like. We can never feel quite as much pleasure and comfort as we would like. We can never be as healthy as we would like because this body is dukkha the second of these universal characteristics. The human body is bound up with dukkha, meaning it's, it's unsatisfactory. It does bring us some pleasure. It can be healthy, it can be strong, but these experiences don't last. And the pleasures we experience with this body don't last. Our good health will not last forever. Our youth does not last forever. This is the unsatisfactory side of the body or the dukkha of this body. So when you think about the body as self, you just think about it, we're always ending up identifying with dukkha and becoming 
sad or unhappy or angry or stressed or caught into greed and obsessions based on the, all this thinking around self and this body. So when we practice satipatthana, mindfulness directed to the body, it's a very whole, very complete practice. We're noticing the body in different postures, mindful as we sit, as we walk, as we lie down to sleep, as we're standing, bringing mindfulness to just know the posture, standing is standing, sitting is sitting, lying down is lying down. And all the other kinds of postures as you're turning, standing up, sitting down, as you're chewing food, as you're bathing yourself, brushing your teeth and so on. Just bringing mindfulness to the present moment, to the posture, and from that reflecting on impermanence, the impermanence of this body. Posture changes. The body is aging. The feelings and experiences of the body change through the day. We feel fatigue. We feel energized. We feel full. We feel hungry. Feel thirsty. We need to go to the toilet. The body is constantly changing in its nature. It's unstable. Brings us a lot of discomfort aches and pains. And when we're just witnessing that with mindfulness directed to the body, then these things are just as they are and we're seeing the truth, seeing the body is anicca, dukkha, anatta. When we're not practicing mindfulness or we lose our mindfulness, we get caught into thinking. We might say unwise thinking or unguided thinking and we just start getting caught into our preferences so I like this and I don't like this I'm happy with this and I'm not happy with that I feel good I feel bad and we think about the body and we can become very depressed and you go and look in the mirror if you're very attached to your looks then it can be very depressing seeing all the blemishes or as we change in our life, we get more aches and pains, or if we fall ill, we can become very unhappy. And this is through our thinking and attaching to self, connected to this body. You can be ill but not be suffering with the illness. Or you can age, but you don't have to suffer with aging. And the practice of mindfulness directed to the body is helping to remedy this, helping to free our minds from suffering by freeing the mind from its identification with body. But our minds are very stubborn, so even hearing a talk and thinking about it, we go away and not long we forget. We fall back into our thinking and suffering about this body. Liking it, disliking it, satisfied, unsatisfied, content, discontent, doesn't take long. So we have to keep redirecting mindfulness to the body and questioning 
our own attitudes and views, looking deeper. If you still don't see the dukkha of the body, then just imagine in, in your meditation, do a, a guided meditation where you take out each part of the body, you know, these 32 parts that we've contemplated in our chant, and ask yourself what kind of illnesses or disease couldn't befall the different body parts. You know, work from the outside in. You just skin can be subject to so many illnesses, you know, skin cancer, and rashes, and dry skin, and eczema, and damaged skin, scars, and scabs. All kinds of skin problems. You go inwards. Every organ of the body can fall ill. Your lungs can become inflamed and they can have be subject to pneumonia, get coughs and wheezing, and have breathing problems. The heart can be have irregular heartbeats, we can have clotted arteries and veins. The liver can get full of toxic chemicals, can change, can become cancerous. And the kidneys can start to fail, can no longer purify the blood. Some people have to go onto kidney machines when they're older. The blood itself can get full of impurities. We can get too much sugar in our blood or not enough. The stomach can have problems, digestive problems and ulcers and gas. Intestines can have problems. Every part of this body we can see is dukkha in that sense. Difficult to maintain it in a pristine well-preserved condition for very long. This body does fall ill and it does age, even if you manage to escape illness. Just through aging, things start to wear out. And this is contemplating, we say, dukkha satcha, and the truth, the universal characteristic of dukkha instability, unsatisfactoriness in this body. The body is impermanent, it's dukkha, it's not self. We cannot control it or make it otherwise. We can't command the body not to get old, not to get sick, not to die. We can't even stop it from getting hungry for one day. Even if you eat the best food, you can't stop it from getting hungry. And when the human body does die, we have to admit that it becomes something that's valueless. Nobody really wants a corpse. We want to get away from corpses. We want to bury them or cremate them. Nobody likes to keep a corpse because it's unpleasant.
when I lived in Thailand, we used to go and see autopsies at the hospital. They let monks in to study what a human corpse looks like. And they have one practice. They'll uh, open up the chest and the head, take out all the organs, put them on a table for you to look at so you can become familiar with the brain, the heart, the lungs, liver and so on. So you can see all the different body parts. It's very helpful for understanding the inside of this body. But at the end of each autopsy, they kind of show you how we look at a corpse because it's too much trouble to put everything back in its place once you've removed all the organs. They just open up the stomach, make a big kind of space, and they put everything in together. The brain, the heart, the lungs, everything goes back into the stomach and then they sew it up. Whether the corpse will go off to a funeral or they just use it for other purposes. Everything is put together in the, in the stomach. You just see how valueless all these organs become once someone dies. You know, we don't worry about the brain anymore or the heart anymore once somebody's died. And that's the truth of it. And the Buddha said our body becomes like an old rotten log in the forest. In some cultures they even just take the dead out and put them in the forest or they put them on a mountain top and let the animals eat them. Because that's what a, a body becomes. Once we, we die, we have no choice but to let go of this body. And this is something to contemplate so that we develop a wise attitude towards this body with insight. See, ultimately we have to let it go. It's not ours to keep, to hold on to. So we can develop this meditation in any posture, any time, any place. We can contemplate our own body, or the body of others. We have to be careful when you consider others, especially if it's the opposite sex, very easy to fall back into our usual attraction, infatuation. So maybe best to contemplate our own bodies at first, become familiar with this body. Just notice how we need to wash it and bathe it every day, clean it. If we don't clean it, it becomes a bit smelly and unpleasant. We need to feed it and give it medicine when it's sick. To keep contemplating in your meditation or even at other times to see this body as anicca dukkha anatta. And this is the vehicle for developing insight, wisdom, quieting the, quietening the mind, understanding more deeply the true nature of this, this human being that we have here. So I'll end the talk here and we've got a few more minutes of this session so you can carry on meditating until you hear the bell. <laughs>